We are in 1 Corinthians 11, starting with verse 17. Now, last week, uh, we saw Paul take a, a, a turn in the, in the letter into talking about order and unity within the church and the way we do things in the church. It's interesting, we as, as Christians often argue and fight about the wrong things. I probably haven't told you anything you don't know. But a lot of the arguments we have about how you do church don't even, aren't even found in Scripture. And the things that are found in Scripture we don't seem to pay attention to. So tonight, we're going to look at a passage in which he talks about the, the practice of the Lord's Supper. It's the longest section in Scripture, and it's the one we turn to quite often in churches to, dis, to discern what the Lord's Supper is all about and how we should do it. And I grew up in a small Baptist church, as I've told you all many times, very, very small. We always had the Lord's Supper on a Sunday night, never Sunday morning. It was once a quarter, just like in this church, but always on Sunday nights. My grandma was the official Lord's Supper preparer. Her, her husband, my grandfather, was perpetual chairman of the deacons. And so it fell to her to prepare the bread and the cup. And the bread, bread, quote unquote, was actually pie crust. She'd roll it out and cut it. And so, yeah, it was good stuff. <laughs> the prepackaged stuff we get today can't compete. And when I was a little boy, I can remember, I got saved when I was nine, so this was before then. I remember one night being very upset that all the adults were eating a piece of that bread and drinking that little cup of juice, and I wanted some. And I asked my mother why I couldn't have some, because she was steadfast. She would not let me take of that. And she afterwards, because she wasn't going to talk during the church, church service, afterwards she sat me down and she said, listen, this is not just bread, and this is not just juice. This means something. You need to understand what it's all about. First of all, you need to get saved, and you get baptized, and you need to know what it's all about, and then you can take the Lord's Supper. And I think my mom was wise in that. Uh, first of all, it helped me realize, oh, I need to make some kind of decision here. I, there's something for me to do. This is not just something I show up and a little mid-service snack that I get. There's something I, I decision I need to make. But second, it... it was instructive to me to see that this was not some empty ritual. There was a meaning behind it. Now, the church has argued over the Lord's Supper, or some branches call it communion, some branches call it the Eucharist. They've argued over it for centuries. There were whole decades, even centuries, where you could get killed, executed, for having the wrong belief about the Lord's Supper. If you we're in England at a time when, for instance, Queen Mary was queen, and you said that it was just ordinary bread and just ordinary wine instead of the actual body and blood of Jesus, they would tie you to a stake and burn you or cut, you know, cut off your head or whatever. They, they, this was serious business. And it turns out, again, we were arguing over the wrong thing. Not that that question doesn't matter. It does. But that's not even what the Bible really addresses as the thing you need to focus on. So... Verse 17, we're going to start with, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. You may recall last week in verse 2, he said, I'm happy with you. I, I commend you because you've held on to the traditions I've been teaching you. Well, now he turns around and says, and this I don't commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you must be recognized, may be recognized. Now verse 19 is kind of an odd verse. If you took it out of context, 
It makes it sound like Paul's saying, you know, factions in the church are a good thing. How else are we going to know who are the really good people unless the really good people all hang out together? But it's obvious when you read all of Paul's writing, that's not at all the way he thinks. So what I believe is Paul is using sarcasm in verse 19. He's saying, I believe there are divisions among you because obviously you good people have to hang together, right? You have to show yourself to be distinguished, to be genuine. So verse 20, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Now right here you get an indication of how different worship was in the first century than it is today. First of all, they didn't have church buildings. They, they met in homes. Uh, we're going to get into this much more deeply in chapter 14, but uh, there was a much less structured sense to worship services back then. The whole idea of having an order of worship probably wouldn't have even occurred to them. The idea that one guy always gave the sermon, that was not the practice in the ancient church. And the whole idea that we walk in and we, we go through this elaborate series of rituals and then we're done, well, it was more of a family gathering than that. And as part of it, there was a meal. Now, I used to read this passage and what, think that what he meant was people would run into the Lord's Supper and eat up all the bread and drink up all the wine and then there was nothing left for anybody else. And if my grandma had been making the bread, I would have understood. But I don't think now that's what he's talking about. Over in Jude 12, Jude, the brother of Jesus, mentions a practice called the love feast or the agape feast. And it seems to be, because we see it written about in some of the church fathers, some of the people who lived back then and wrote about these kinds of things, early churches used to get together on Sundays and have what we would call a covered dish dinner, a potluck dinner. People would just bring the food and they would feast together. They would, they would, they would enjoy their fellowship. And that was part of their worship. That was part of their gathering. And as part of that, in, in the midst of that, this is what I think Paul's talking about here, in the midst of that time, they would celebrate communion, the Lord's Supper. So as I picture it, everybody's sitting around eating their plate that they have made, and then the, the leading elder of the church or whoever stands up and says, okay, take your piece of bread, this is the body of the Lord, take your wine, this is the cup, this is the blood of the Lord. Paul's problem was... The way they were doing that, which was meant to be a time of communion and fellowship and we're all one big family and we just enjoy one another, was actually doing the exact opposite. And this is why he says, this is not the Lord's Supper you're eating. You're, you're turning each other against each other. So what we think was happening was some of the wealthier members of the church just weren't practicing hospitality. They were choosing to gather with one another and sharing together their elaborate food, their good food, so, you know, maybe the Rothschilds and the Rockefellers were over here enjoying their lobster thermidor and their filet mignon and having a little ice sculpture. And, and then over here, the Smiths and the Joneses just had bologna sandwiches. If anything, maybe they showed up thinking, well, we don't have anything at home. I'm looking forward to this. This will be the only good meal I have all week. And it turns out the Rockefellers aren't sharing. They brought it for themselves and their friends. 
And so it was causing division within the congregation. Paul indicates that some people came and even got drunk, which showed that they didn't understand what this was about. They saw it as a big party when it was meant to be something else. Was it meant to be something that was expressed or experienced with joy? Absolutely. But not something in which you just indulge yourself. It was supposed to be about the love within the body of Christ. So then he says, then he starts to tell them, remind them actually, Let's remember what this is supposed to be about. Verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So Paul, when he begins by saying, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered from you, what he's saying is, this is what the Holy Spirit made known to me. This is, these are the facts of the story. And I told them to you as he told them to me. So I'm not telling you anything you didn't already know. This is, this is the revealed truth of God's word. When Jesus took the bread and broke it, he was saying, my body is something physical, just like you can hold this bread, just like you can touch this bread. It is being broken for you. Remember, he, he said this hours before he would be arrested. Think of the presence of mind for Jesus. Was he afraid? We know he was. Was he anxious? Was, he feel, was his stomach churning? Soon he would be on his face in the Garden of Gethsemane with sweat pouring off of him and turning to blood. That so intense was the fear he felt, and yet he was taking the time to enjoy this Passover meal with his disciples and not just enjoy that, but also to give it a new meaning for the rest of time. This is my body. He wanted them to understand. Tomorrow when you see me, and they've grabbed me and they've chained my hands behind my back, and, and then later on, they're beating the skin off of, my, off of my bones. And later on, when they're pressing those thorns into my scalp, and later on, when they're driving those nails through my hands, I chose this. This is my own choice. As he says in John, uh, it's my own to give up. No one takes it from me. I choose to give it. This is my body. And he took the, the cup and said, this is my blood. That blood that was shed was for our forgiveness was for our sins. He said, this it is the new covenant in my blood. I don't know how many times you've heard that saying and not really thought about it, but that harkens back to Jeremiah 31. Remember, when God created the nation of Israel, he made a covenant with the Israelite people. He said, I will be your God. You stick by me, you follow my law, and you never need to worry about another nation invading you. You never need to worry about drought or famine or disease or anything else. I'm going to take care of you. And of course, they couldn't live up to that. Nor could we. If God would have made that kind of covenant with the United States of America, we would have failed just as surely because we're sinners. So in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31, the prophet is saying, God has and always has had another covenant ready. He knew that first one wasn't going to work. 
The second covenant, the new covenant is for you. And that new covenant is no longer will you say, know the law, because God's going to write the law on your hearts. No longer will there be somebody standing up in front of a group of people saying, let me tell you who the Lord is, because all of you will know the Lord, because he will be in your heart, because he will be in your spirit. That new covenant where God forgets our sins and remembers them no more. And so Jesus is saying that new covenant that hundreds of years ago Jeremiah talked about, that covenant that Moses and the Israelites said, oh yeah, we'll live up to it, never did. It's all going to be fulfilled starting tomorrow. When you see my blood shed, that's the beginning of that new covenant. That's the beginning of that new agreement between humans and God. And we know the implications of that, even if we sometimes, maybe often, take it for granted that we get to walk straight into the throne room of God without a priest interceding for us. We, we get to ask forgiveness of our sins. We don't have to confess to some human being. We, we pray directly to God. We don't pray to a saint. Uh, we don't ask someone to pray for us, thinking their prayers are more effective than ours. We have, we're children of the King because of this new covenant that comes through the blood of Jesus. So when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, here's something I just recently realized. I didn't realize it on my own. I, I read it and it just, it hit me like, why didn't I never see that? When he says, do this in remembrance of me, what he's saying is, in a sense, this is my memorial. You know, tomorrow when we have Max's funeral service, his memorial service, what are we going to do? We're going to remember what a good man he was. Gave his life to public school education, to leading kids in fellowship of Christian athletes, to teaching Bible study here at the church, and to loving one woman his whole life. I mean, just a good man. And we're going to remember all those things. And we're going to celebrate the fact that he's with Jesus now. At the same time, we comfort each other. That's what we do. That's why, that's why we have funeral services. So Jesus is saying, in a sense, from now on, every time you take this supper, it's like having a funeral service for me. It's like remembering me and thinking about, here's what Jesus did for me. And here's what I can celebrate about his life. He is sitting at the right hand of God now. And I'm going to be with him someday. It is in remembrance of him. The Lord's Supper, that's why the Lord's Supper is so important. It's why we gather. It's, it's the whole, it reminds us why we gather. Now, side issue, some churches do it every Sunday. Some churches do it monthly. Some churches do it quarterly, like ours. There's nothing in the Scripture that tells us how often to do it. Growing up, as a lifelong Baptist, I was always told we do it quarterly because that way it imbues it with more meaning. If we did it every time, we'd just, it would just be one more thing to get done. I don't know if that's a good reason to do it quarterly or not. It's just the way we do it, and I'm fine with it. Um, what's impo more important than how often is that you recognize what it's all about. If it's just a ritual you go through, or even worse, if you think, well, I better eat that bread and drink that juice so I can get some spiritual power of some kind. That's, that's not what it's about. That is not what it's about. I can, Sharon right over there can tell you exactly where we get the bread and the, and the juice. And she knows it's not, you know, it's not straight from heaven. Okay. We order it online. It would taste a lot better, wouldn't it? Yeah. It probably even tastes better than pie crust. Um, but here's what I want you to see. 
something we don't often look at or think about. We, we often think about the Lord's Supper as being about the past, remembering what Jesus did. But notice he says, every time you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So even the night before, Jesus is thinking about his return. And we know, we know he also said, um, I will not drink this fruit of the vine again until I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. So this is the last time I'm going to taste this. Remember, wine in the ancient world was, it was for celebration. It was for gathering together and rejoicing. It was for wedding feasts. First miracle Jesus ever performed, changing water into wine at the wedding feast at Cana. What he's talking about is a time of rejoicing yet to come. Think about Jesus. In hours, he's going to be arrested. He knows this. He's about to go through the worst 12 hours any human being's ever experienced. But he's thinking, yeah, but someday, someday we're going to rejoice. Someday we're going to feast. Remember, the metaphor he used for the coming kingdom of God was always a wedding feast. And wedding feasts were very different in the ancient world than, than they are today. Today, a, a wedding reception is one of the most anxiety-inducing things you can possibly imagine, right? I mean, it's, it's <clears throat> poor dad and mom are you know, thinking about all the money they just spent, and that's never coming back, and the, the bride is stressed because things aren't going the way she wants them to, and everybody's kind of standing around awkwardly. But the wedding feast in the ancient world was... The whole village quit work and got together for the best time of the year and, and laughed and ate and drank and danced and enjoyed one another. And Jesus said, that's what the kingdom is going to be like. So when we take the Lord's Supper, yes, we remember what Christ has done for us. We do it in remembrance of Him, but we also do it saying someday we're going to... This, this little wafer and this little cup of juice is just a, a silly ridiculously uh, minor way of remembering the feast that's coming. The absolute celebration that is on its way. So then Paul gets down. That, that's him reminding them of what they already know. Then he gets down to the actual instruction. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Now, I hope this doesn't shatter your confidence in me as a pastor, but I have changed my mind about that passage. Now, let me tell you how. For years, I thought it was just about self-examination. For years, I would get up in front of a church and I'd say, during this time, examine your heart. If there's anything in your heart that's not right with God, get it right with Him now or don't take the Lord's Supper. And I still think that's a good idea. Self-examination is something we all should do on a regular basis. I just don't think that's exactly what Paul's talking about here. I think specifically he's not talking about general self-examination. He's talking about a specific kind of self-examination, not just, well, I went back to drinking this week, or um, you know, I, I was ugly to my wife, or, or whatever the case might be, or, or I lied, or I stole. 
No, I want to focus on verse, I think verse 29 is the key to understanding. He says, anyone who eats or drinks without discerning the body. Now, what is he talking about? And there's only two possibilities. Either he's talking about the bread, which is the body of Christ. But in that case, why didn't he say without discerning the body and the blood? Or he's talking about the church itself as the body of Christ. The church is Christ's body on earth. I think that's what he's talking about. I think what he's saying, if you eat and drink, if you're just there to feast, and you're not thinking about the health of the body of Christ, then you're part of the problem. You've got to be thinking about how we love one another and how we're getting along together. I think what he's saying is, when he's saying examine yourself, he's saying, similar to what Jesus said in the, in the uh, Sermon on the Mount, if you have an offering to present before the Lord, but you know your brother has something against you, set aside your offering, go, make things right with your brother, and then come and give your offering. God doesn't want worship that is insincere. God doesn't want worship that comes out of a hateful heart. What Paul, I believe, is saying is the body of Christ is more important than just going through a ritual. It doesn't mean anything if you have hatred in your heart for one of your brothers or sisters, or if they are angry with you and you haven't done everything you can to make things right with them. I've got a couple of stories about that in just a moment, but... Here's what I think he's saying. All of us, every time we take the Lord's Supper, we need to ask ourselves the question, in what way am I contributing to or detracting from the unity of this body? If I know, if I'm just stubbornly dug in because I know I've hurt so-and-so and I'm not going to apologize because I think they don't deserve it, then I'm hurting the unity of this body. If I'm a constant complainer, if I'm just a source of criticism and complaint, I'm hurting the unity of this body. If I'm a bully and always want to get my way and usually succeed because most, most of God's people are too nice to oppose me, then I'm hurting the unity of this body and I need to repent. And isn't it amazing that Paul says some of you have actually died because of this. God has taken you out of the picture because you were hurting the body of Christ. The Lord's Supper should be a time that brings us together. It should be a time where we realize whether you live in a high-rise or, or a mansion or whether you live in a cardboard box, whether you've lived a pretty outwardly moral life or you've been in jail for much of your adult life, whether you, uh, whether you are successful or struggling, Jesus died for your sins. That's what brings us all together. The Lord's Supper ought to make us one. And yet for the Corinthians, the Lord's Supper was tearing them apart. And that, I think, is why Paul, back in verse 20, wrote, so it's not the Lord's Supper you're eating. You're not eating a supper that brings you together, that reminds you of His death. You're, you're doing something that's about you, and it's ripping you apart as a church. So I've seen this teaching in action. At my last church, one Sunday after the Lord's Supper, a teenage girl came up to me and she said, I just wanted to say thank you because now I get to hang out with my best friend again. And I said, well, thank you for saying that, but I have no idea what you're talking about. And she said, well, because you said that 
if you've got, if someone has something against you, you need to make it right or don't take the Lord's Supper. And he said, and she said, my, my mom and my best friend's mom have been angry at each other for a while now. And my mom hasn't let me call her or text her or go over to her house. But today, during church, before the Lord's Supper was passed, my mom went over to my best friend's mom and apologized. And now I get to hang out with her again. And I said, well, that's pretty amazing. I didn't, you know, I don't know, Brother Bob, I don't know if you feel this way, but sometimes you're like, wait, people actually obey this stuff sometimes? It's, it's amazing. Um, yeah, sometimes. Now, on the other hand, my poor wife had a situation at another church where, I want to make clear, not this church, another church. There was a church member who was angry at my wife for something she thought my wife had done. In my totally unbiased opinion, I think my wife was innocent. Here's what I know. Carrie tried several times in several ways to get together with this woman and talk things over. She called her and emailed her and texted her and said we needed, and every time she'd be put off. Nicely, but put off. And so my poor wife just felt like she couldn't take the Lord's Supper. And I kept telling her, Carrie, you've done everything you could. It's on her. But she just felt like, I don't know that I have. Maybe I could do more. And I admire her for at least uh, doing her best to be obedient to the Word of God, even if I think she went overboard. But we should take it seriously. We should take the body of Christ and the unity of the body seriously. Now in verse 32, let me... Uh, move forward pretty quickly. Verse 32, uh, the last part we just read, let me read that again. He says, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So he's saying, you know, I, I said earlier that because you're not taking this seriously and doing this right, many of you have gotten weak and sick and some have died. He said, just understand, this is for your good. I'm disciplining you because I love you. God doesn't let sin linger in us. I always think to myself, when I think about God and His attitude towards our sin, it always seems kind of harsh to us. But would you want an oncologist who said to you, well, we got most of the cancer, that's good enough. We got three quarters of the cancer, we're just going to let that go. I don't want that. I want, I want a doctor who's going to do all that's possible to rid me of what can kill me. God does not look at us and say, well, you're a lot less sinful than you used to be, so I'm just going to let it go. You don't cuss anymore, and you, know, you don't watch those bad shows on TV, so I'm not going to worry about the fact that you're angry at this fellow in your church. No. God loves us enough that He doesn't let sin linger in us. So then verse 33, as we wrap things up. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat... Wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. So Paul, after all of that, his practical instruction, here's your problem, you're diving in and, and eating, and your eating is causing trouble. Just the simple act of waiting until you know everybody's got food before you start eating will solve a lot of this, is what Paul is saying. If you're that hungry, eat something at home. But think about your brother first. And I'm always reminded, this is a silly story that makes me look bad, but 
Carrie and I, years ago, were eating with my brother and his wife at Apopados, one of my favorite places. And the waiter brought out our food and set it you know, on that big tray on one of those folding stands. And my, our food was on one side and my brother and his wife's food was on the other. And I don't know if this was his waiter's first day or what, but he gave me my food and then Carrie her food. And at that, the whole tray flipped over. <laughs> and we felt terrible, but uh, I was hungry. <laughs> and that's like one of my favorite places. And so my brother said, y'all just go ahead and eat while it's hot. And I should have said, no, we're just going to wait until, because I knew they had to restart everything. They were going to start from scratch. So he told me that a couple of times. I said, okay, and I just dug in. And I still feel guilty about that. I still feel a little guilty. Um, you know, the simple act of waiting until everybody has food before you eat is a reminder that it's not all about me. It's not all about me. One more story. I, I'm reminded of uh, Tony Campolo uh, tells a story of, or told a story of one year at Christmas they, at the church they were in. They were doing uh, communion, Lord's Supper, uh, Christmas Eve service. And since it was Christmas Eve, there were lots of people they didn't know in the service. And sitting in front of them was this young woman all by herself, and she was crying. Nobody knew who she was, why she was crying. They're passing the plate, and she let it go by. And Campolo's father was Italian. He's, he spoke English, but Italian was his first language. And he leaned forward in his heavily accented voice and said, Take it, girl. It's for you. And she did. Now you may say, well, maybe she had a good reason to pass it up. But the point the father was making, which is the point I want to leave you with, is whether you feel worthy of the body and blood of Jesus or not, doesn't matter. He chooses you as worthy. He makes you worthy because of His gracious choice. And that's the real celebration of the Lord's Supper is that uh, every time you put that bread in your mouth and drink that juice, remember, He chose to die for us just as we were. So, let me close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, we're grateful, so grateful for our salvation bought with such a precious price. Thank You, Lord Jesus, for making us worthy by Your death. We pray, Lord, that You would help us to nurture a church that addresses every issue, that makes peace whenever there's conflict, that when we disagree, we do it in a healthy way, and that always, always seeks to build up the bond of love between believers. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Lord, we pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.